Labor Wave Radio, an opening space for the radical imagination, present The Dinner Table After the Revolution with Raj Patel. The idea of the dinner table, whether it's around sort of mummy and daddy and two kids, is itself a product of our times. And if one imagines a future after the revolution, it's not just the size of the dinner table or the labor that goes into the food that appears at the dinner table. It's the the whole sort of string of commodities uh, and of relationships of power that go into thinking about who's there and whose labor is there and whose commodities are there and going to what, what nature flows through and what capital flows through this this, this dinner table in a way that, that is emancipatory, uh, whereas capitalism, of course, now it's not. Pleased to present the first in an ongoing mini-series that is a collaborative effort between Labor Wave Radio and Opening Space for the Radical Imagination, titled After the Revolution. We have gathered together various writers, thinkers, and organizers on the ground to discuss some aspect or topic of a future post-revolutionary society, and we allow them to take time and space to dream aloud with us on what these things might look like and how they might be. This episode is on the dinner table after the revolution with our guest Raj Patel. Raj Patel is an award-winning writer, activist, and academic. He is research professor in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, and a senior research associate at the Unit for Humanities at the university currently known as Rhodes University in South Africa. Raj Patel has been featured in numerous scholarly publications in economics, philosophy, and politics, and he regularly writes for The Guardian and has contributed to the Financial Times, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Times of India, the San Francisco Chronicle, The Mail on Sunday, and The Observer. His first book was Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. His second, The Value of Nothing, was a New York Times and International bestseller. And his latest, co-written with Jason W. Moore, is titled A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things, published by Verso Books. He is also the co-host of the fourth nightly food politics podcast titled The Secret Ingredient. Each of these episodes is going to be formatted in a similar way, where we begin the conversation with why is it important to discuss this aspect of society, for instance, the dinner table. Then we talk about what it might look like after the revolution. And then finally, we conclude with a conversation about how do we get there. Part of the impetus 
for bringing about this idea of hosting discussions on what a future revolutionary society might look like is due to the recognition of how capitalism and all of its oppressive forces also defeats us at the level of our imagination where it has become commonplace to believe that this is the only possible world we could ever hope for and at the very least even if it's not very good nothing much better can come instead of it this notion is now captured in the classic line by thatcher where she said there is no alternative but we on the left often are experimenting with alternatives and trying to articulate new practices and enable them to emerge however it is not the case that we get as much time and space to dream and imagine and really think through what these aspects of society could actually look like. So what we hope here is to stimulate the imagination, stimulate our creativity, and also share some stories about how people are really trying to bring about these revolutionary societies here and now and bring us to that better world. Please support our show by sharing our content and liking it on social media, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, as well as our website, laborwaveradio.com. And check out the upcoming opening space for the Radical Imagination happening April 3rd through 4th. You can get all the details and all the updates by checking out the website at imaginativespaces.org. We begin this conversation with Raj Patel asking him about the dinner table and its importance for today. Why does it matter to think about the dinner table? Um, because the, the dinner table is uh, both a site of production and re- reproduction. I mean, it, it is uh, the, uh, a site uh, that brings together all that is wrong with capitalism and all that is right with what might come after, um, because it is a space uh, often that is about love and about sharing and about creativity and about joy and about pleasure. Um, and the more people around that table, the more of those things that there, are, there, there is. And uh, if, if one's imagining a future that isn't a sort of segregated, individualized, atomized world, then the dinner table might be a site for struggle in that regard. The, the dinner table, as we understand it at the moment, is uh, a confection of capitalism as well. Um, it's one of these sites uh, in and geographies that's been made by capitalism. And the whole idea of individual households cooking individual things by themselves takes work to become normal. And uh, you know, you you see this in the sort of compulsory manuals around households that are distributed in seventeenth century seventeenth uh, century England. Um, you see that the invention of the household. Uh, being perhaps not as compulsory, but being uh, one of these things that's sort of forced by the architecture of modern life happening across the world. Uh, one of my uh, favorite recent books uh, is about, it's called The Weight of Obesity. Uh, and it's set in Guatemala. And it's a, an anthropological in- investigation about how uh, the c- communal ki- uh, cooking areas uh, in which usually women, and we'll, we'll come back to, to, to this issue, but usually women uh, in communities will get together and cook meals that take forever to make because they're using scratch ingredients and some of these ingredients take, take a while to process. And so uh, the, the process of cooking is a communal affair. And by the end of it, you, yeah, everyone cooks together and then uh, uh, you know, women cook together and then families eat together after, after the day. And what you see is the transformation away from that uh, communal kind of uh, approach to the dinner table, to a dinner table that becomes much smaller. Uh, and because of that, it's much smaller, uh, women are being exploited more 
uh, because you know, patriarchy is, is there you know, under capitalism or whatever precedes capitalism. Um, but under, under capitalism, uh, the duties uh, that are often ascribed to women around uh, you know, reproductive labor and around cooking mean that women are now buying convenience food uh, and are buying, for example, uh, processed food because uh, you know, by day they are working in fields where they see the, the pesticides that are used on fruits and vegetables. And so they think that um, by avoiding fresh fruits and vegetables, by going for processed food, you're somehow neutralizing these, these horrible contaminants. Uh, and so then you, we move into a world of processed food and of microwave meals, um, in which the dinner table is still provided for by women's labor. Uh, but now it's just a couple of people eating incredibly processed food, as opposed to uh, this, this broader context of uh, communities eating together and cooking together and cleaning up together. So the idea of the dinner table, you know, the idea that, that you, you have in your mind when you hear dinner table, whether it's uh, around sort of mummy and daddy and two kids, uh, or whether it's a, a, around you know, you know a, a sort of small four person affair is itself a product of our times. And if one imagines uh, a future after the revolution, it's not just the size of the dinner table or the labour that goes into the food that appears at the dinner table. Um, it's the, the whole sort of string of commodities uh, and of relationships of power that go into thinking about who's there and whose labour is there and whose commodities are there and going what, what nature flows through and what capital flows through this, this, this dinner table in a way that, that is emancipatory, um, whereas capitalism, of course, now is not. Yeah. And so thinking about a society that is based on collective liberation, we could say a post-revolutionary society, whatever revolution might mean to you, what in that circumstance does the dinner table look like? Because as you already described, the dinner table itself is a concept that's uh, produced by capitalism. So for you, what does the dinner table look like? after the revolution? I mean, I, I do think that no matter where you are or when you are, and I'll get to that in a second, uh, the dinner table will have more people around it. Uh, I, I think that uh, if one imagines what it is that prevents more people eating together uh, at the moment, uh, it is this sort of process of individuation. And uh, for, for most of us who are... Uh, you know, not able to eat at restaurants every day. You know, we, we find ourselves constrained by time and by resources and by um, the, the, you know, the, the limited kind of bandwidth we have available to uh, be together. And insofar as we choose to be together, we may not do it over food. After the revolution, I, I think that food and the pleasure of food and the sensuality of food uh, becomes much more democratized. Uh, and that pleasure becomes accessible to everyone. And the, one of the most efficient ways of doing that is by people cooking and eating good food together much more often. Uh, so if, if one imagines not um, you know, uh, a, a, a small table, but uh, groups where people you know, are, are cooking and eating and sharing uh, food together, that's certainly one way in which I imagine food in the future being eaten and, and you know, the labor around it being shared in ways that are fair and in ways that are um, sustaining of community that help us build our communities together rather than atomize, uh, you know, atomize our lives. But I also think it, it matters uh, around where and when you are. I mean, if, if you're uh, in central Texas, as I am, uh, then this time of year, there are going to be very different things on the table than there will be in, you know, in Toronto, for instance, um, or in you know, rural Iowa. I mean, you know, th th there's just Different times of year call for different kinds of relationships to 
the food that is available. Now, this, this isn't to say that there won't be trade and there won't be exchange. But, you know, I mean, I, I, can, I can imagine a world where the kind of tropical goods that currently feature on American tables might not be so abundant. Um, and it's hard to imagine a world without long lines for coffee and, uh, you know, uh, bananas uh, you know, running hot and cold and on tap. Um, but it's okay if in the future uh, less of the world is carved up and uh, mandated to, to, to be the providers of coffee beans and bananas and chocolate uh, so that people in rich, uh, rich parts of the world can profit from. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's not like these things won't exist anymore, but I think that, that there'll be less of them and they'll be uh, divided much more fairly. Yeah, the implications of what you're discussing about the size of the dinner table, how many people will be there, it makes me wonder in your vision of this uh, after the revolution, what does the nuclear family look like? Like, what is the nuclear family going to be something that really reconfigures and changes and expands? Or are we going to still be bound by those kinds of familial units? Well, again, I mean, you know, the, 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 there is a sort of heteronormative um, stricture around the idea of the nuclear family that, again, is, is, uh, that th- th- emerges very much um, at the same time as capitalism's demands for uh, free uh, reproductive labor provided by women and uh, you know, circumscribing the kinds of things that count as women's work, uh, you know, excluding women very explicitly from from medical field, from the educational field, and, and making sure that, that uh, patriarchy rules in the home uh, and men are as kings in the home as kings are to men outside it. That kind of thinking around the nuclear family, I think, can change. And, and even under capitalism, we're, we're seeing certain kind of breaks with that uh, in uh, some of the ideas around um, you know, civil rights around gay unions, for example. Uh, but that's not nearly enough. Right, I mean, you know, merely to diversify the number of people that can be in a nuclear family, or you know, the the uh, the, the the sexes of people who can be in nuclear families is not the same thing as busting apart the idea of a nuclear family. And I do think that part of the idea of what a post-capitalist society might look like um, starts to bleed those boundaries away again, um, and bleeds them away in a way that's intentional as opposed to merely patriarchal. I mean, you know, there are, there are lots of sort of patriarchal systems of families that are extended and uh, in which lots of people do lots of different kinds of parenting and lots of children are uh, all together at the same time, um, but are presided over in ways that are not uh, emancipatory, but are patriarchal. But I can imagine, uh, you know, in a post-capitalist society that the way that we think about dividing reproductive labor is much more equitable uh, and, again, shared across communities rather than concentrated in the hands or, you know, in the hands of an individual man. Yeah, I'd also hope that you can speak a little bit more to what you were saying about the kinds of mandates and strictures around global trade that have things like bananas year-round or other types of tropical fruits that realistically are not seasonal anymore. So in your imagination, after the revolution, what does that actually look like? Like, What does trade and exchange of foods look like? How would it have to be to be in a liberatory fashion? There's so much that would need to happen um, in order for us to have bananas that are, for instance, um, untainted by uh, the long history of slavery, uh, colonialism, and imperialism uh, that currently find their way into the Cavendish banana. Uh, but, you know, a, a sort of short glance at the history of the bananas is uh, a, a, a story about 
um, certainly in, in the Americas, uh, the, the, the rise of the United Fruit Company, uh, a company that was um, so you know, it's multifarious and evil and had its tentacles and everything that, in fact, uh, the, the local Spanish word for it was el pulpo, you know, the, the octopus. It was uh, this, this sort of vicious uh, sort of settler company that um, occupied large parts of uh, Central America for the purposes of growing bananas for the U.S. market. And um, you, you, the, the reason we have the term banana republic um, is not uh, because you know, there are places that grow bananas that are by accident hopelessly ungovernable. But a banana republic was very explicitly a republic that was a republic in name only, but in which the United Fruit Company was essentially uh, running the show. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you've got heinous stories of, the, you know, of, of communities resisting the, the United Fruit Company, and Guatemala is the, the most important example, um, where uh, a, a president wanted to, to engage in some land reform that involved land that the United Fruit Company wasn't even using, and so wanted to return that land to, uh, the president wanted to return that land to, to peasants. Uh, and instead, uh, the, the United Fruit Company called um, the, the CIA to arrange a coup that resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths as a result. Uh, and if we are to have bananas that are free of that taint, what does that involve? I mean, it certainly involves reparations, um, not just from the United Fruit Company, which uh, is now called Chiquita. Um, and uh, oughtn't to deserve to exist on the basis of its uh, previous corporate crimes, but is also you know, reparations from the U.S. government. And then uh, we need the, the the trade system reformed so that uh, the the land on which bananas are grown can be returned to the people who work it, and for them to be able to make an informed decision about what it is that they would like to do with that land, um, because uh, no one has ever asked banana you know, workers on banana plantations, would you like this land? And if you would like this land, under what conditions uh, would you like to be growing things on this land? Would you like to bananas or something else? Uh, you know, what, what, what sorts of economy would you like? No one's ever asked that question. Uh, a, uh, after the revolution, the process of revolution is a process of finding out what it is that people want and then making it happen. And uh, you know, expanding the imagination of what's possible so that we move away from just the, the fair trade bananas in which workers are paid a few pennies more per hour uh, in order to slake the guilty consciences of the consumers of them. And instead, to ask the very deep question, well, look, you've been working on this land for generations. Uh, what is it that you want and deserve uh, as uh, as compensation for the exploitation that has been rained down on you and your family? Uh, so those kinds of questions, I think, are tremendously important. And it's not clear to me that everyone's going to say, oh, yeah, well, the banana plantations are here already. We might as well just carry on doing that. And th the answer might be quite different. And if it is different, and if it does involve substantial reparations as, as I believe are warranted, uh, then it may be that people who find themselves on land that is currently used for growing bananas will make very different choices. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it, it's not for us pining for a banana or a cup of coffee or, or a hot chocolate um, to, to gain say what that might be. Well, what I'm hearing you say uh, infers to me that there is like a deep commitment to real democracy in this future society and to autonomy over ourselves and like the work that we do. And I'm kind of wondering more about the kind of political implications of that. Like, where do you think the role of nation states is in this future society? What does ownership look like? Like, are there going to be nation states that kind of control these means of productions? Are there going to be different kinds of political configurations? It's, I mean, it, it's hard here to, um, to imagine what 
those political configurations are. I mean, you know, in, in part, this is where my inner Zapatista comes out, uh, where, uh, you know, I, I, I think we make the road by walking because, uh, it's hard for me to, to imagine the, the state as it's currently, um, it, as we currently see it, um, to disentangle that from a colonial project. And what, what I understand by revolution has to be a process of decolonization. And that's a, that's a really hard uh, act of imagination to engage in uh, as a solo project. Uh, I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, wh- wh- where I see examples of resistance to colonialism, uh, I, I see that uh, mainly through the resistance of indigenous people uh, imagining configurations of power and self-governance that do not fall on the nation state, but nonetheless uh, do the kinds of things that nation states do. So, you know, the, the, they're in the business of providing welfare and of community support and of transport, transformation and in shared uh, collective goods. Um, but it's possible to have the things that we like about a nation state without having uh, the state apparatus looking the way that, that it currently does. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I can draw inspiration from that, um, but I can't, uh, and, uh, you know, but, but it, it, it's unwise, I think, for anyone to, to imagine both what things look like after the revolution and, um, you know, the, the process of political theory that, that's, you know, the, the sort of new political theory that's, that's required without actually engaging in that, um, you know, in, in those actions as a matter of praxis. I, I think that uh, th- these institutional forms have to be, have to emerge from praxis rather than from, um, you know, whatever strange revolutionary um, has that believes they have the right idea. Well, before we move into the the how do we materialize this future society, the praxis that you're talking about, I wonder if you'd be willing to engage in a bit of like a thought experiment. So, will you guide us through one day in the life of the dinner table after the revolution to you? Like, walk us through your day. What are you doing? And how does it look and feel for you? I, I imagine the, the, the day starts after a full eight hours of sleep, which um, already is like, you know, that's unimaginable. Who gets eight hours? Um, but yeah, uh, so, so the day starts with a full eight hours of sleep. Um, and then, uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it involves the, the reproductive labor of working with children and making sure that they're um, all set to engage in whatever communal activity they need to be uh, heading off to. Um, and then uh, it's, it's very much about sort of hearing what it is that um, has been harvested or knowing what it is that's been harvested uh, and is available for exchange uh, and is available for communities to be able to access that day. Uh, and then to be able to sort of knit that together with uh, the requirements of you know, what it is that we know that, that uh, of, of the community that I'm in that, that's ready to um, uh, that, that, that will be requiring a meal, um, and then uh, planning the the process of uh, with other people of the 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 cooking, the the cleaning, the serving, uh, the the making sure that everyone gets what it is that they need, whether young or old. Uh, understanding that the, the the ingredients and the food that we serve is going to be pretty much uh, vegetarian, if not vegan, um, just because the planet demands that. Uh, you know the, the, the that the way that we all get to eat in the future is one that has very little meat in it. Um, and, uh, and that's fine. You know, the, the, the loads of societies have, have not only uh, survived that kind of a diet, but thrived on it um, and found ways to have joy and beauty and deliciousness in, uh, on the plate. 
Uh, and then, you know, we serve, we celebrate, we sing, and we um, then enjoy cleaning up together and going to bed. Uh, and in between, there's been the, the kinds of you know, other kinds of labor that one would imagine is necessary for a community to survive. Often the work of repair, of tending, harvesting, of, uh, of building together. Um, but, you know, if, if one imagines what a, a putative uh, Green New Deal society would look like, it's filled with the activities of care and repair. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the, that, that's why the dinner table can fit so nicely into that sort of post-revolutionary future, because it is one very long act of caring and repairing, um, not only repairing relationships between people and between, you know, humans and the rest of the web of life, uh, but also about caring for one, you know, caring for one another and for the planet we find ourselves. Okay. So like you mentioned before we started this, uh, recording this interview, the easy part is figuring out how we get there. Let's imagine that we're in this provisional moment, like right now, where we can start to materialize this future society, the things that need to happen to bring about a liberatory society where food is exchanged on these kinds of commitments to democracy and egalitarianism that you're talking about, as well as valuing different gender identities and dismantling patriarchy. All those things seem implied in your future vision to me. How do we get there? Like, What are some tangible steps that we need to start taking now? To get to that future, um, I mean, you know, I, I very much subscribe to the idea that uh, capitalism's grave diggers are the working class. Uh, but I think, it, concretely, what that means is uh, building fronts of solidarity. Um, you know, th th there there are organisations that have gone a long way towards this kind of table. Um, there's a very famous picture of, for example, the Black Panthers, in which men and women. Um, are serving children food that, that's been cooked by the community with resources sort of uh, you know, rounded up from within the community to make sure that kids go to school uh, having had a, a full breakfast, for instance. Um, the, the Black Panthers were, of course, smashed by the state. Um, and uh, they, they were represented as enemies of the state and enemies of the American people, whereas, in fact, you know, a lot of their ideas around you know, healthcare for all and, uh, you know, School, school you know, food for everyone, and that uh, black and, and poor communities should be in solidarity together. All that stuff um, is still very much of the moment, and still you know, lives lives on in certain kinds of ideas that even the state has appropriated from. So, um, I mean, I think that there's a need not just for an idea of sort of class identity and a class for itself as well as uh, of itself, um, but organizing. And organizing that articulates um, demands around equality across uh, lines of race and class and gender. Um, but that kind of movement uh, can't be led by the union movement alone, and it can't be led by as a revolutionary party or a, a, you know, a, a cell alone. It has, to, it has to happen where people find themselves. I mean, that, that, that's what's so exciting about the Black Panther Party, for example, um, is that initially the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was precisely that. It was very much about sort of just protecting black bodies from the wrath of uh, the white police and the white state. But it also articulated with uh, movements um, of uh, Chicanos, of indigenous uh, Native Americans, uh, and th th there were lots of ways in which those movements uh, prefigured a, a kind of politics of emancipation that we can learn a great deal from right now. Uh, and so what does it look like to be part of this? It, it involves, you know, again, the, the, the sort of being involved in movements on the ground running, whether it's um, shank dweller movements in the global south or whether it's about peasant movements 
uh, here in the United States, um, there are there are a great deal. Uh, there is a great deal of organizing that is um, theoretically incredibly rich, um, in which uh, the intelligence of members of the working class are uh, on vast and abundant display, um, because people are coming up with really exciting alternatives to the ways that we engage with property and with one another and with like, you know, these sort of tropes of the state. Uh, and whether that's about sort of cooperative uh, membership of, of, of work that starts on the land and ends on the table, uh, as the United Food and Commercial Workers Union are experimenting with Minnesota, or whether it's about um, you know, rematriating land uh, that was once indigenous land and uh, for that land to be under uh, you know, in- indigenous leadership. Uh, I, I think that it, it very much about, you know, there's no sort of one-size-fits-all policy here. I mean, it, it, it's very much contingent on where one finds oneself. Uh, and also the priorities of one's community and, uh, and working with movements that are very theoretically informed and you know you pick your sort of revolutionary organization but understanding that that uh, you you can't as we had in Austin very recently uh, have sort of Maoist cells beating the DSA up in the street for revolutionary impurity whereas in fact the real enemy remains capitalism uh, and, you know you, you have to start where you are uh, and not imagine yourself in some sort of fantasy uh, lefty world Absolutely. And as you're noting with the history of the Black Panther Party, it's not necessary to even have to build all this stuff from scratch. We have some other histories that can inform and learn, uh, we can learn from for today. So are there other histories that you would point people to, to learn from, to take inspiration from, or even maybe contemporary manifestations of political organizing towards this liberatory society that you want people to be aware of? Well, you know, I'm just finishing a project on... um food system and climate change uh, uh, in, internationally. Uh, and I was with some incredible activists in, uh, from Malawi, uh, and we, we traveled to the United States for a couple of years. Sorry, a couple of years ago, we, we traveled to the United States for a little bit then. Uh, and we were working with groups like La Via Campesina to, to visit some of those sites of struggle. Uh, and it was, it was consistently the case that whether in Oakland at the People's Community uh, Kitchen or uh, in Detroit uh, at uh, the uh, D Town Farms or in Maryland at the Black Dirt Farm Collective. Um, it, it, it was it's striking to me, and it, it, you know, this is this is a, a sort of sample bias, but uh, you know, it, it was communities of people of color who've been on the front lines for a long time uh, of not just the exploitation and the, the enslavement that have built this country, but also. Uh, of you know the, the violence that the state continues to meet out. Uh, it was communities of, of people of color who are coming up with some really incredible solutions. And so you know, uh, I do think that uh, Detroit is a place I look to 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 imagine what the future might look like. And that's not just because Detroit conforms to some sort of strange fantasy of post-industrial America. You know, whenever you see things about Detroit, you always see the Packard building falling into vast disrepair, and then you know something else happening. Uh, that's not the story about Detroit that, that I'm interested in uh, so much as the stories uh, that are ongoing there around uh, black power being built around access to land and of economic and community self-determination. And I very much like what it is that is happening around D-Town farms, but you don't have to go to Detroit to see that. There are pockets of resistance across the United States that are really very, very exciting. Um, and whether that's coming from indigenous people in, you know, for example, uh, got the, the, you know, the, the, the struggle over uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, 
uh, and the alternatives that, that are emerging there. Uh, or, you know, the, the, the Muckleshoot uh, Community Food Sovereignty Initiative is very, very exciting for this reason. But, you know, wherever, you know, whatever state you're in, uh, even Texas, I'd imagine, uh, uh, has uh, exciting things happening on the ground where people are, are trying rather dramatically to alter the configurations of, uh, of, of power. And I'm, I'm excited about that. This future that you're painting sounds very appealing, <laughs> and I hope we can get there. I just want to give you the opportunity to have any kind of last word or final thoughts on the matter before we conclude this conversation. Often, you know, all of this feels rather daunting, right? I mean, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm in awe of, of your asking the question, what happens after the revolution? I'm excited to learn from you who else has you know, risen to the, to, to the occasion of, of, of thinking through what, what that might be, because often we don't give ourselves permission to imagine that that's possible. And so we find ourselves in uh, rear guard actions against capital and, you know, fighting the fights uh, within our unions because can you believe what that capitalist just did or what that boss just did? And, you know, and those are important fights to fight. And, I, you know, I, I have them and so do you. Uh, but I, I think that part of capitalism's triumph is it's... Uh, ability to, to persuade us that that's all we're allowed to dream. I am so grateful to you for uh, creating the space for folk to be able to ask themselves, well, what, what might it like be like if someone had asked us what sort of society we wanted to live in? Since no one's ever bothered to ask that question, but only present us within, you know, with sort of electoral choices of Coke and Pepsi, then, then we've, we've not really been given the choice. Uh, but to, to be able, I mean, I, th I think part of the struggle has been uh, particularly around you know, c combating climate change, that it's just too big and we can't possibly do it. Um, whereas, in fact, the opposite is the case. It's just so big that we have to do it, and we can. And you, you see so many of these examples around. Um, at least I do. And I, I get frustrated when people can't share them with me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're uh, making possible the, the sharing of, of these experiences. And when this bloody film comes out later on this year, uh, I'll, I'll be excited to, to share that with you. And, um, you know, through that, share the examples of, of many of these movements in the U.S. who are already doing work around reimagining what table off the revolution. I'm excited. Great. Well, with that, thanks so much for taking the time and dreaming with us. Thanks so much, mate. Appreciate the invitation.
Sunset, sunset, sunset. I'll be there.